thank you so much, uh, Ruvain. And uh, for me, let me just say that it's a great honor and a privilege uh, to be here with you. Um, I'm very humbled to have been invited. And uh, it's really, for me, uh, very precious to be able to spend this time together with you. Um, one of the things that's very clear when we are attentive to the the tune, the melody of the Bible is that time is very, very important. The, the Bible begins with the word bereshit, right, in the beginning. So there's some reference right away to time. And as we go through the revelation to the Jewish people that came out of Egypt, it's very clear that a lot of the rhythm of our life revolves around the Sabbath and the festivals. <coughs> and time, obviously, is also the currency of life. Right? Our life is made up of the individual moments of life. So when we think about what is the substance of our life, it's built on these little tiny pieces of time. And that's why people that have a spiritual consciousness understand how precious time is. Uh, every moment of our life is packed with potential to grow. And we either stagnate in life or we're growing. There's no other possibilities. And so when we waste time, on some level, it's almost a small, <coughs> short way of committing suicide. It's like almost in steps. Time is such an important thing. And uh, one of the things that I noticed last week when I was reading the Torah was when it speaks in the, in the Parsha of Shemini, there's a whole section that deals with the dietary laws. This is something that would never come out, by the way, when you're reading the Bible in English. But when you read it in Hebrew, there's something strange that, that reveals itself. Because there are four animals that are unusual in that they only have one of the two kosher symbols, right? Most animals that are not kosher, don't have any of the kosher symbols. They don't chew their cud. They don't have split hooves. Kosher animals have both. And the Bible focuses on four animals that only have one of the two, right? The chazir, the pig, uh, has split hooves, and it lays there advertising how kosher it is. <laughs> but deep inside, it doesn't chew its cud. But then the Bible speaks about three animals that have split hooves, but they don't chew their cud. But the way the Bible expresses it is fascinating. It speaks about one of the animals in the present tense is that it doesn't chew its cud. Right? It's not chewing its cud. But then it speaks about another animal that it hasn't chewed its cud in the past tense. And then it speaks about the third one in the future, it will not chew its cud. So now, I'll just throw this out for you to think about. Why does the Bible do that? Why is there this sort of range in these three animals when it speaks about in the past, present, and future tense. That's just extra homework for later tonight. <laughs> but uh, when Ruvain asked me to uh, think about what to share tonight, he, I think what he had spoken about was uh, you know, where we are and where we're going. And uh, to me, uh, since I'm very caught up in time, I'm right between two big Jewish holidays. Uh, as we stand right now, we're almost smack in the middle between Purim, which was uh, two weeks ago basically, 
and Passover, which is a little bit more than two weeks from now. And what I wanted to try to share tonight was an understanding, uh, not so much of Passover and Purim, although we'll, we'll discuss those, but an understanding of the history of spirituality. I mean, the, the history of, of the world in terms of how we have grown, how we're supposed to grow spiritually, and to use the Jewish calendar and the holidays as a model for this, and to understand where we are now in that scheme. Now, I'm going to hope that you'll be able to sort of imprint this model on your brain so as I'm going through this with you tonight, it, you'll be able to travel with me. But on the sheets you have in front of you, you have basically a timeline. And the timeline here goes from left to right as opposed to Hebrew which goes from right to left. Uh, the timeline goes from left to right and it starts with one, right? And it goes to 12 because the calendar has 12 months. And I have it up on the, the board here for you as well. So the first month, the first month in the Hebrew calendar is Nisan and that's going to be the holiday of Passover. We're not there yet. And the last month of the year is Adar, which we're in right now. As a matter of fact, we're just now sitting in the last few days of the month of Adar, which means we're now together for the last few days of the year. The, the year ends. This is the end of the 12th month. And next, I believe Tuesday, I think it's Tuesday, is Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which means it's the beginning of the new month of Nisan. So we're just a few days from the real first day of the year. And again, when we think about it, we are now literally right between these two Jewish holidays in terms of where they fall. Because this holiday, Purim, has happened just a few weeks ago, two weeks ago almost. And this holiday, Passover, is going to come up in two weeks from this weekend. So let's start our adventure. And uh, you may want to strap your seatbelts in. Uh, we're going to go all over the place. But I'll try and I'll be gentle. I'll try, and, I'll try and be gentle. Okay. So what I titled this uh, handout for you is Olam, the hidden world. And why do I call it that? Uh, in Hebrew, the word for world, where we're living, right, the world, in Hebrew, that's Olam. So why is the world called Olam? Maybe you've learned this already. Because it's the hidden world. Because the word in Hebrew for hidden is the same word as world. Ne'elam. Ne'elam is hidden. Ne'elam. Olam is world. So these two words, world and hidden, basically have the same Hebrew root. Now the question is why? Why do we refer to the world we live in why is the world somehow, we call it hidden? What, what is hidden in our world? So that should be obvious, right? What's hidden in the world is the Creator. We don't see the Creator. So Hashem is, in a sense, hiding in the world that He created. There's a very beautiful Hasidic story that was told by Rav Baruch of Mezhibaz. And he speaks about an old man 
that sees a young boy, he's sitting on the side of the road and he's crying, he's so upset, he's broken. And the old man goes over to him and says, what's the problem, what's wrong? And he says, my friends and I were playing hide and go seek and they, it's my turn to go hide. So I went and I, I hid, I went and hid in a very hard place and you know what? No one came to find me, they all <laughs> ran away. So the old man sat down next to the boy and he started crying. And the boy said, why are you crying? He says, because the same thing is happening to Hashem. He said, Hashem is hiding in the world and so many people are not trying to find him. So I love being with uh, a group of people like yourselves because I know that all of us are mevakshe Hashem, we're all seeking Hashem, we're all seeking more of a connection to God. And one of the ways that God reveals himself, one of the ways that God reveals himself to us is through miracles. Now the Hebrew word for miracle is nes. I have it on the board here, it's on your sheet, N-E-S, the word nes. Now what's amazing about the word nes, Hebrew is so mind-blowing, is that the word doesn't only mean miracle. Nes means something else in Hebrew. Anyone know? So nes means a banner, a banner. And the reason is because every miracle waves the banner of divine imminence, right? The miracle is calling out and saying, here I am. The miracle calls out to us and God is announcing that he is here. So a miracle, a nace, is a miracle and it's a flag, it's a banner. But our sages teach us there are two kinds of miracles. You'll see on the left-hand side of your page, there's a miracle that's called a miracle that's nigle, nigle, and here I've translated it for you. Oh, I haven't. <laughs> so nigle means revealed, a revealed miracle. A revealed miracle is basically a miracle that is obvious. It's like a no-brainer that there's a miracle going on because they're usually supernatural. Right? So when you witness a supernatural miracle, that's called a revealed miracle. A nace nigle. A nace, a miracle that is nigle, that is revealed. On the other hand, they speak about another kind of miracle that's called nistar. It's on the right hand side of your page. It's over here. And nistar means not revealed, but hidden, concealed. Because there are certain miracles where it's not so obvious that it's a miracle. Right? Let's say uh, you go back in history to the 1967 Six Day War in Israel. Well, there were plenty of people who realized that was a miracle. That was incredible. And there were many people who said, Kol HaKavod Sahal. All the glory goes to the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. Right? There are people who didn't see any miraculous events in 1967. It wasn't so obvious. So again, we're going to speak about that polarity, that difference tonight between a revealed miracle that is supernatural, that's in your face, that's obvious, and the concealed, hidden miracle. Okay. Now here is the thesis I want to share with you. Uh, as we say in Yiddish, you have to halt cup, you have to sort of pay attention. And it's not that hard, but it's a little bit maybe out of the box. 
So, but I want you to digest it so we can really uh, go through the evening. Here's my thesis, my, my theory. My theory is that this timeline, this stretch of 12 months, right? It's 12 months. It's a timeline that just basically takes you through the year, from the first month to the 12th month, right? That I want to suggest that this timeline of 12 months corresponds to, illustrates, all of history. It's really speaking about the entire scope of history, specifically Jewish history, but on many levels it's world history. And it begins at, let's say, the beginning of Jewish history, which took place 3,300 years ago when the Jewish people came out of Egypt. That was the moment where the Jewish people were birthed. That was the birth of a nation. That's the beginning of this timeline. And so the beginning of the Jewish calendar begins with that holiday of Passover. Right? That's the beginning of our history. It's also the beginning of the year. But what I want to suggest to you is that it describes the nature of the holiday at that time describes the spiritual level the spiritual level of the people at that time. And if we go to the end of the 12 months, it's only 12 months later, but what I want to suggest is that it describes the end of history, which would be when? Well, it's not the end of history, but it's the end of, let's say, our current uh, stage of history, meaning that we're living in a certain stage of history which we would call, let's say, pre-Messianic where the world is still moving towards its ultimate climax, where we haven't reached where we're supposed to be. Right? The world really begins in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. And then we know that things get broken. And so in many ways, we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. And we're heading towards a restored world. We're heading toward a world that becomes shalem, right? Shalem doesn't just mean hello and goodbye, it means, and not just peace, it means completeness. So we're really working towards an age of completeness, an age where people and the world and relationships are where they're supposed to be. But we're not there yet. That's off in the future. It could happen next year, it could happen next month, happen two years we don't know when it's going to happen but the end of our calendar the end of the calendar I want to suggest describes that period of history where the world has reached its spiritual climax and it describes the spiritual level of the people at that time now, I'm going to make this clearer to you as I give you examples. But again, the basic idea I'm trying to suggest is that this calendar of 12 months is really a picture of history, going from the beginning of Jewish history until the climax when we've reached the Messianic age and we're living in an age that's returned to the Garden of Eden in many ways, to paradise. And that's where we're heading, but we're not there yet. And that we have these holidays that we meet during the year. And I'm going to try to illustrate 
how these holidays describe the level, spiritual level, of the people during this historical process. And the more important part is, where are we today, all of us? Where are we today on this map? And really, what should we be learning? And really, how can we move ourselves and the world along? That's my goal for tonight. Okay. So let's begin where? At the beginning. <laughs> we'll begin at the beginning. So Passover, Passover which takes place 3,300 and change years ago, right? That is the holiday par excellence of the revealed miracle. If you want an example of a holiday in Jewish history where God basically pulls back the curtain and doesn't leave any questions answered and makes it abundantly clear who's calling the shots and who's doing everything, it's Passover. God basically hits the world over the head. And you have a whole year, a whole year of pretty incredible supernatural miracles. And, I mean, just reading the, the scripture, the Bible, they're quite amazing. When you read how these miracles are understood in rabbinic literature, it sort of goes up a notch. So, for example, whatever took place in Egypt was not affecting the Jewish people. So not only was there darkness for three days, a supernatural darkness, where the Bible says it was so dark, people couldn't see each other, and they couldn't even get up from their seats because it was so dark, but the Jews had light in their dwelling places. And when there was blood in Egypt, in the Jewish homes, there was water. So there wasn't just incredible things going on, unbelievable things going on, but there was a division where it only affected this much of the country. Incredible things happening. It got so clear, it became so clear, that even finally the Egyptians <coughs> realized I have it for you here, Exodus 8.15, where what do they say? They say, Etzpa Elohimhi. This is the finger of God. They understood. They understood. Even the Egyptian priests and their, their, their clergy, whoever they were, they, tempt, they come telling Pharaoh, look, this is God and we just can't fight anymore. <coughs> And then when they come out of Egypt, after this year of supernatural miracles, incredible supernatural miracles, they come to the Yam Suf, the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, I have no idea what its real name is. They come to Yam Suf. And again, something incredible happens because the sea splits open for the Jewish people, they cross, and then as soon as they cross, the Egyptians go in and boom, they're drowned. And if we study this story in, again, the Midrashic literature, it's unbelievable. They cross not in one lane, they cross in 12 lanes. And then the seabed is totally dry. And then there are fruits and vegetables growing from the walls of the wall. I mean, it's unbelievable what's going on. I think what the Midrash is trying to tell us is this experience was so overwhelming, right, that, that it, 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 just imagine the most miraculous thing in the world that's what's going on. So the rabbis in the Midrash say that as the Jews crossed the Sea of Reeds, the, the most unsophisticated Jew crossing the sea 
had a clearer vision of God, the rabbis teach us, than Ezekiel the prophet. Now we all know if you read the prophet Ezekiel, it sounds like he's on LSD, what he's seeing there in the first chapter. I mean, he's seeing the heavens and he's seeing the... But they say that the simplest Jew, the simplest Jew that had that experience saw much more than Ezekiel the prophet. This must have been some experience. And the Bible describes that what was God doing? God was showing us. God was literally showing us who he was. That's why we don't really talk so much about believing there's a God. I mean, I, I would tell you that, you know, I, I believe that the Toronto Blue Jays are going to win the World Series this year. Right? That, that's sort of belief. That's wishful thinking. But here, God is saying, I showed you so that you should know not that you should believe that I exist, right? I showed you, I showed you, so that you should know. And there's none beside him. Deuteronomy 4.35. Now what's going on here? You have this experience of the exodus from Egypt, the plagues over that course of an entire year, the splitting of the sea, I believe that at that point in Jewish history, we needed God to pull back the curtain. Because we had been submerged in an idolatrous Egyptian culture for 210 years. We were living in a land that reeked of immorality, that reeked of idolatry. And the rabbis teach us that the Jewish people had descended to the 49th level of spiritual impurity. That's how contaminated we became. So much so that the rabbis teach that when the Jewish people were crossing the Red Sea, the angels protested and said, why are you saving those people? The angels said, they're idol worshippers and they're idol worshippers. So we had really reached a very, very low level in many ways. Although there was still greatness about the Jewish people, there was something there that was great, but we had been corrupted by our immersion in this land of immorality and idolatry. So I believe that because of that corruption, we had to have very clear demonstration by God of who he was. We required a very clear demonstration. God had to take off the gloves and make it clear to us beyond the shadow of the doubt that he runs the show. That he is the creator and as the creator he controls the creation. Now, if you thought that that wasn't quite enough, it gets better. Because 49 days later, they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and they actually hear the voice of God. Every person standing at Sinai basically becomes a prophet and hears exactly what God is saying to Moses. So we read here, this is the holiday of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, the second holiday in the Jewish calendar, where the Bible says, to Mo God says to Moshe, Behold, I come to you in the thickness of the cloud so that the people will hear as I speak to you and will also believe in you forever. That we as a people had the clearest experience of God's revelation, not just hearing 
from Moses that Moses comes down and Moses tells us, guess what I heard? God revealed himself to me. No. Every person standing there heard God speak. Incredible. Incredible. That's the next holiday. That's the holiday of Shavuot in the third month of the calendar. Again, the beginning of the calendar, these incredible plagues in Egypt, the splitting of the sea, and then seven weeks later, we're standing at Mount Sinai and we all hear God. And the next holiday, which takes place in the seventh month, is Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorates the 40 years that we traveled through the desert and we were nourished and sustained again by unbelievably incredible supernatural miracles. So every day there is manna falling down except for the Sabbath, and there's a well that follows them in the desert, they're getting their water from a well, and there's a pillar of fire that leads them, and God has these boots that he provides for them, and we're told their clothing doesn't wear out, and again in the Midrashic literature, the Talmud, we're told much, much more stuff going on. No one has to go to the bathroom. That's how incredible this manna was. It wouldn't be bad for 40 years. <laughs> we're told that the booths they were living in were air-conditioned. I mean, the, the, there were no bugs. There were no, it was just a paradise they had. But again, it was very clear that this was not just something that happened. That they were getting smashed over the head with it. They were getting hit over the head with it. And again, my, what I'm trying to share with you is that back here at the beginning of Jewish history, we needed it. We needed to have that clear, overt, supernatural, revealed demonstration of God's presence and God's reality because we had been crippled and we needed God to basically make it very clear to us. But now what I want to do is jump very, very far to the end of the year. And the end of the year where we're right now the twelfth month of Adar. We're just in the last few days now. And Adar is the holiday of Purim. So again, Purim describes what's going to be at the end of history. And again, Purim describes the spiritual level of the people at the end of history. What's with Purim? Purim is a very, very strange holiday. I forgot to mention, this will be helpful, that on Passover, just in a few weeks, we have a, a meal where we basically relive the experience of Passover, the Exodus, and we have a special book that we read called the Haggadah, which tells the story. And if you've ever read the Haggadah, you should notice that there's something that's just strange in that there's a name that you would expect would be in this book, and it's not there, right? Whose name is not really in the Haggadah? No. He's all over the place. It's Moses. Moses' name is not in the story of Passover. Now, wait a second. That's pretty weird. You would think that he'd be the star of the show. Right? You're reading the, the Passover story, and Moses is doing all the plagues, and Moses is a leader, and Moses is negotiating with Pharaoh, and Moses is leading them out. Nothing. I mean, he, there is the word... The name appears once sort of as almost a parenthetical comment, but he's basically not there. Why? Because Passover is trying to make it clear to us, don't think for one second that we got out of Egypt because Moses was a great leader, right? He was a good politician. 
he had some, you know, clout with Pharaoh. He, there was no human involvement at all. We got out of Egypt purely through divine intervention. But you get to Purim, Purim, the last holiday, and that's the redemption of the Jewish people from genocide. 2,400 years ago in Persia, right, there was someone that wanted to annihilate every single Jew. Boy, girl, man, woman, that was the plan. Wipe them out, right? It's a very, very big problem. It's a serious problem we're facing. And we redeemed, right? We're redeemed. And we read about this story in a book in the Bible called Megillat Esther. I have it on your sheets here. Purim, we read Megillat Esther. Megillah in Hebrew means a scroll. And Megillat is the construct form. So it means the scroll of Esther. That's the book we read. We read the scroll of Esther. It tells the whole Purim story. I think it's 10 chapters. Whose name is missing from that book? God's name isn't there. And God, there was no divine involvement in that story whatsoever. And that's why when we read the book of Esther, we don't see God's name mentioned. Because it seems that his presence is not in the story. However, Purim describes the state the spiritual state of the world at the end of history, where, as the prophets tell us, the knowledge of God will be as spread across the world like the waters that cover the oceans, Isaiah chapter 11. Or, as we're told in the book of Jeremiah, when everyone will know me, God says, from the least of them to the greatest of them, Jeremiah 31. Or the prophet Sephania, when everyone in the world is gonna turn to serve God together. All of the prophets, all the prophets, speak about a time in the future when all of humanity will come to know God. That's the, one of the great promises of the Messianic Age, when all of humanity will come to know God. That's going to be the level that we're on at Purim time. Purim time, the end of history. The end of history, the 12 months, which are such the end, the end of the process, that's the time of the Messiah. When God's, the knowledge of God will be as spread in the world, everyone's going to know God. So because everyone has that kind of profound knowledge of God, everyone's going to understand that no, God is in the Purim story. As a matter of fact, when you read the Purim story with spiritual eyes, you see his fingerprints on every single page. And I'll tell you a secret. I taught you two words before in the evening. Two kinds of miracles. A revealed miracle, that's called a nes nigle, and a concealed miracle, a nes nistar. Nistar is hidden. So the words for the scroll of Esther, that we read this book, the scroll of Esther, Megillat Esther, the scroll of Esther, can be read, those same words can be read as the revealing of that which is hidden. The word Esther means hidden. And Megillah means to reveal, the revealing of. So the book we read is not just the scroll of Esther. Those words, Megillat Esther, mean the revealing of that which is hidden. And the whole essence of Purim is to be able to see 
that God is not hidden in that I mean, God is hidden, but God is there. God is behind the scenes. God has engineered everything. Every step of the way, God is engineering that story. It's very interesting, by the way, that there are two Anochis in Jewish history. Right? The first of the ten sayings at Mount Sinai, the first statement of the revelation at Sinai, is Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God. <laughs> Exodus chapter 20. There's another time that word appears in the Bible. Anochi. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, where God says, Anochi Hastir Astir. I will certainly hide myself. So these two amazing moments in Jewish history, this moment at Mount Sinai where God pulls back the curtains and speaks to everyone, clear, overt, revealed. And then there's the Anochi of Purim, where God is speaking in the hiddenness. The rabbis say something amazing about the holiday of Purim. It's going to sound like heretical. At the bottom of your page here, the rabbis teach in the Midrash that in the Messianic age, all the holidays will be nullified except for Purim. Those rascally rabbis. What do they mean by that? We're going to do away with all the holidays? I, I personally don't think so. But I think they're saying something very profound. I think what the rabbis are saying is this. That when we reach this time in history, the time of Purim, we won't need for God to do supernatural miracles for us to see him. We will have reached a level of spiritual sensitivity that will be able to see God even where God is hidden. It's only people that are on a low level that God has to split the sea or bloody the waters to see him. People on a low level need that. We're on a higher level. You can go out into the forest and sit by a still, beautiful, small stream, and you could sense the godliness right there. So God tells Elijah the prophet, God is not simply in the thunder and the lightning and the big smoky mountain and the big production numbers. God is in the still, small voice. That's where God is, if we are attentive, if we have ears to hear. I want to share with you an amazing passage from the Talmud. This is from the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Shabbat 88a. We're told in the Bible that before the revelation at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, if you get your Bible, it's in Exodus chapter 19, verse 17. The Hebrew there says they stood betachtit hahar. Betachtit hahar. The word tachat means underneath. Now, really, the way it's always translated is they stood at the foot of the mountain. But literally, what it says is they stood under the mountain. I remember I once heard uh, George Carlin, he was talking about uh, getting on the plane, and the, the captain crew said, you want to get on the plane? He said, no, I want to get in the plane. You can get on the plane with evil Knievel. I'm getting in the plane. So, so the Bible says they stood under the mountain. And the rabbis, they play with this. Let me share with this to you. 
Ravadimi Barhama Barhasa says, this teaches that Hashem held the mountain over the Jewish people. He held the mountain, he picked the mountain up from the, from the desert floor, held the mountain over their heads, and said to them, if you accept the Torah, good. If not, this shall be your burial place. Yeah. Sort of uh, makes them an offer they can't refuse. Rav Acher Yaakov says, we see from here that the acceptance of the Torah was coerced. Now that, that has really serious ramifications because if God ever comes to you and says, hey, why were you having a double cheeseburger? You say, why can't I? The Torah says you can't. Say, yeah, but I never accepted the Torah. It's not a real deal. You, you can't put a gun to my head and, and make me sell you the car, my car. That's not a real sale. So the rabbis are saying something here that's very serious. That if we were coerced into accepting the Torah, Hashem can't really have any claim on us. That's a pretty serious problem. But Rava says that it was re-accepted willingly in the days of Ahasuerus, who was the Persian king at the time of the Purim story. As it is written in the scroll of Esther, chapter 9, verse 27, that the Jews established what had been accepted. Kimu v'kiblu. Meaning that at the Purim story, the Jewish people finally fully accepted what had been established before. That's the story in the Talmud. Now let me share with you the way a great rabbinic mind understood this story. I mean, I always a I get asked questions all the time by my students. Do you have to believe everything, you know, literally that the rabbis say? So th they say, there's a famous saying, they say, if, if you believe it literally, you're an idiot. If you say it's impossible, you're a heretic. <laughs> so you, you can't win. But basically, it, it's here not so much to tell us history necessarily. It's here to teach us something important. So the Maharal from Prague, he was a great Jewish mystic who lived at the, in the 16th century, obviously from Prague. So uh, this is how he understood this. Quite amazing, but it really it helps us in terms of what I've been sharing with you tonight. He says, what does it mean that God held the mountain over their heads and said, if you accept the Torah, good. If not, you'll be buried here. Basically, what, what the Maharal says is what the rabbis are teaching us is that by the time they got to Mount Sinai, after everything they had seen, all of the plagues and the crossing of the sea, it's as if a mountain was held over their heads. How could you refuse at that point? Meaning that if I wake up in the morning and God actually speaks to me and says, go back, you have to wash your hands now. You go up in the morning. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna wash my hands. If God's telling me, I mean, they, what are you gonna do? Right. So there, is, there are times when you don't have free will. If I go shopping in a, in a big jewelry store and I have six armed guards that are walking right around me in a phalanx, whatever they call it, right? I, I, I can't shoplift. I, I, my hands are tied. So there are times when the circumstances are such that you don't really have free choice. So what the Talmud is saying here is that the miracles in the Exodus story were so overpowering, they were overpowering, that by the time God finally says, okay, you know, uh, here's the Torah, you interested in the Torah? He couldn't say no. There was, again, an offer they could not refuse. 
Not that they had a mountain held over their heads. It was as if there was a mountain held over their heads. But the rabbis say, again, incredibly, when is the Torah finally accepted? Purim time. Purim time. Why? Because Purim time, there are no supernatural miracles. Purim time, there's nothing that's forcing their hand. Purim time, there's no one that has a gun to their back. Purim time, it's completely volitional. It's totally free will. There's no coercion at all at Purim time. And that's when we're told the Torah is finally accepted. But what we see from this is that miracles are only needed for people who are not on a very high spiritual level. Look at the next story in the Talmud. Tractate Shabbat 53b. Our rabbis taught there was an incident where a certain person's wife died, leaving him a son to nurse. And he couldn't afford to hire a wet nurse. He's a very poor man. So what happened? A miracle occurred, and he grew two breasts like a woman's, and he nursed his son. Said Rav Yosef, whoa, look how great this man is, that such a miracle happened for him. But Abaye replied, no, on the contrary, what a low life he is, that God had to destroy the laws of nature for him. If this man had been on a higher spiritual level, he could have found the money on the street. And he would have realized this is the hand of God that gave me this money. He could have won the lottery. Many things could have happened. But because this man is not on a very high spiritual level, he would have totally missed it. And he would have assumed, oh, am I lucky? Lucky me. He wouldn't have sensed the hand of God. So for him, he had to grow breasts for him to understand that God was behind this situation. You know, the rabbis teach us something interesting. I hope there are no, no doctors in the room. The rabbis teach, Tov Shemorofim Legehenim. The best doctors will go to hell. What are they saying? They're saying that the best doctors often live with the illusion that they are the healer. They don't see that the hand of God is really working through them. So when the guy is the best doctor, right, or she's the best doctor, it's not saying any doctor, the best doctors, Tov Shibarofim, they're going to go to Gehenna. Because they assume it's their power. It's interesting, by the way, that the main Jewish prayer every day is called the Shemona Esrei, the 18 blessings. The word Tov in Hebrew is the letters Tet Vav Beis, which spells out 17. It's saying tov shbarofim, the, the doctors that are only into 17. They only acknowledge God for 17 things, but the blessing for healing, they assume they're the healers. They don't focus on Hashem. Now for the important part of tonight's talk. Where are we in this scheme? Where are we? Meaning, I don't think we're here anymore because the truth is we don't see supernatural miracles in our lives. I mean, not as a nation. But I don't think we're here yet. I'm pretty sure we're not at the end of history. I think we have a little bit of a ways to go. 
before we're living in that world where the knowledge of Hashem is spread like the waters that cover the seas, I don't think we're there yet. I think that we just experienced this as a nation where there were Jewish people who after the 1973 Yom Kippur War said, oh my goodness, this was not natural. This was not normal. This could only be supernatural intervention that we escaped in 1973 and that we were able to somehow rescue those people in Entebbe and we were able to somehow win the Six Day War in 1967. There were people who saw that. But we all know there were many people who didn't recognize the hand of God in any of those occasions. And the reaction in Israel was often, kol hakavod letzahal. All the glory goes to the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, that's what did it. So I don't think we're here yet. And I'm pretty sure we're not there anymore. So if I had to find a holiday that corresponds to our spiritual place in history, it would be that holiday that takes place between these holidays that were typified by supernatural miracles that hit us over the head with God's presence and Purim where God is totally hiding. And that holiday is the holiday of Hanukkah. Hanukkah comes out in the ninth month. And I believe that our spiritual state now as a people, as a world, we're in the Hanukkah state of mind, as Billy Joel would say. We're in a Hanukkah state of mind. I want to share with you my hypothesis that Hanukkah is the holiday of transition. It's the holiday of transition. From what? From this kind of spiritual consciousness, from the consciousness which says, I only acknowledge God when he hits me over the head and pulls back the curtains and performs incredible supernatural miracles. That's when I will notice Hashem. That, that man that had to grow breasts in order to nurse his child. How do we transition from that to this kind of world where you see Hashem everywhere, even where he's really hiding? And I think that's the purpose of Hanukkah. And I think Hanukkah has that incredibly important message to teach us because Hanukkah is that holiday of transition from that kind of world to the world we're looking forward to. The word Hanukkah means, one of its meanings is not just dedication, but education. Chinuch is education. So Hanukkah is the holiday of education. It's supposed to be educating us to reach this higher spiritual level. Now what I'm going to hope to do in the next few minutes is share with you what I believe is the spiritual theme of Hanukkah. What is the spiritual theme? And what is the theme I believe that again we need all of us to basically embrace. There's a verse in the story of Joseph that rabbis point out that every year when we're celebrating Hanukkah it comes out during that time of the year when we read about the story of Joseph. The whole Joseph story is every year intertwined with the holiday of, of Hanukkah. Amazing. So the Bible says something incredible. I don't know if you ever noticed this. In Genesis 37.2, Ela told Yaakov, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, at the age of 17 years, was a shepherd 
of the flocks with his brothers. There's something very, very wrong. There's something very wrong with this verse. What should the verse say? These are the generations of Jacob. What should the next words be? Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda. It's telling you these are the generations. Every time in the Bible when, it, when it's going to tell you someone's generations, their progeny, it lists their children. Here it says these are the generations of Jacob and it goes into a whole thing about Joseph. So non sequitur. A non sequitur. Joseph was taking care of the flocks with his brothers. He was saying, what's going on here? Does everyone see the, the difficulty of this verse? Well, the word toldot in Hebrew doesn't only mean generations. It could mean legacy. It could mean the legacy of someone. One of the great Hasidic masters was Rav Menachem Mendel of Rimenov. He died in the year 1815. Listen to what he said. Listen deeply. He said, what is the legacy of Jacob? What does it really mean to be a child of Jacob? He said, it's Yosef. It's this idea of Yosef. Now, what is Yosef all about? We know that Jacob's wife, his favorite wife, was Rachel. And she didn't have children. Leah already has six children. And she's like going out of her mind. And she finally, she, she gives one of her nurse, her maids to to Jacob to have children for her, but he, she wants her own kids. And finally we know she, she's blessed with a child. And she names that child Yosef, Joseph. Why? What does the word Joseph mean? So what it says in the Bible is as soon as she has that baby, she's been waiting so long, she names the baby Joseph because the word Joseph means Hashem should add to me another son. It means to add. So as soon as she has that precious child, what does she name the child? It's her prayer. I want another one. That's what she names the kid. I mean, I don't know if that affects Joseph, his self-esteem. You know? I think he did okay. But, but that's his name. That his mother, she is grabbing for more. And what Menachem Mendel of Rimenov says is, that is the essence of what it means to be a child of Jacob. It means that you're someone who is always seeking more. You want to go beyond. You are not satisfied with what you have. You want to increase. You want to do more. You want to go beyond. You want to transcend. And I think that the theme of Hanukkah is the theme of transcendence. The theme of transcendence. Let me illustrate it for you. I have seven illustrations. If I was a good boy, I'd have eight for you. I, I don't have eight yet. <laughs> I have seven for you. Okay. So the first example is the miracle of the oil. So we're told that when the Jewish people reconquered uh, the temple in Jerusalem, they cleaned it up. It was defiled by the, the, the pagans. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to re start the, the daily practice, the daily services. And one of the things that took place in the temple every day was that the menorah, which was of seven branches, was lit every day in the, in the temple. 
The problem is that the Syrian Greeks had defiled all the oil. All the oil was defiled. And so they couldn't find any oil to light the menorah. Anyway, they finally find a little jar of oil, but it only lasts for one day. And the place where they're able to get more oil is four days away. So they're stuck, basically. They're going to have one day supply of oil, and they're going to be stuck for the next eight days. They're not going to have anything. So we're told that an incredible miracle happened. We're told that they lit that candle, that, that menorah, and it burned for eight days. Meaning that that small, that's not so small, <laughs> that, that small jar of oil went beyond its normal capacity, right? It transcended what would normally be expected of it. We expect it only burn for one day. It burns for eight days. That's the theme of Hanukkah. Going beyond, doing more, transcending. Then we're told that there was a military victory and God gave the me'atim, the rabim biyad me'atim. God delivered the many into the hands of the few. And not just the many into the hands of the few. Who are the many? They were a superpower, a professional army with all of the equipment they would ever need. And who are they fighting? Some old rabbis, basically. I mean, th th there was no fight here. It was almost ridiculous. Forget about David and Goliath. This is a tiny, tiny, tiny Jewish army. They're not professional, not well-armed, and they're fighting a superpower. And we, again, went beyond what would normally be expected of us. The expectation would have been that the war would last five minutes and we would be squashed. But they went beyond what would normally be expected. They did more than they should have been able to accomplish. They transcended. That is Hanukkah. Then we're told something interesting. The rabbis discuss, how do we celebrate Hanukkah? And they said, we're going to light candles. Nice, we're going to light candles. But of course, how do you light the candles? So in the Talmud is a debate, and the school of Shammai says, you light eight candles the first night, and you light seven the second night, and six the third night, etc. You go from eight all the way down, and the eighth night you light one candle. And Hillel says, no, you increase. He says, Mosif v'holeich. You go beyond, you go more, you do more, and you light one the first night, two the second night, three the third night, four the fourth night. Again, Hanukkah is about going up, doing more, increasing. Yosef. Then we have something really amazing about Hanukkah. All of Judaism has a principle called Hidur Mitzvah, beautifying the mitzvah. So when you build a sukkah, you could just make a, a structure that's very simple, but really try to make it a beautiful sukkah. And you could buy an etrog that just passes you know, the bare minimal, but you should try and buy a beautiful etrog. I, I have tzitzit on. I, I could have made tzitzit or bought tzitzit that were very simple. No, they're more beautiful. They have you know, racing stripes or whatever. <laughs> but we try to do the mitzvah in a beautiful way. And that applies to all of Judaism. All of Judaism, everything we should do in a beautiful way. The one time, the one exception, where the rabbis say, you've got to supercharge the beautification of the mitzvah is at Hanukkah. The only example in all of Judaism. How do you see this? The truth is that, according to Jewish law, 
you can fulfill the mitzvah of Hanukkah. Basically, what all you need to do is the whole family gathers together every night and they light one candle. That's all they need to do. The whole can the whole family gets together and they light the candle. The better way of doing it, the Hidur mitzvah, is each person in the family has their own candle and they light their own candle. That's the better way of doing it. But the better of the better ways is that each person lights one the first night and two the second night and three the third night and four the fourth night. It's strange. Why of all the things we do in Judaism, there's a huge menu in Judaism, this is the only example of mahadrin min mahadrin. We supercharge the beautification of the mitzvah. Why? Because Hanukkah is the holiday of transcendence. Hanukkah is the holiday of doing more, of going beyond, of not being satisfied, of wanting to go way beyond the normal. We have another example. According to Jewish law, there's a principle of Tuma Hutra Barabim, which means that if the entire community is ritually impure, the Bible has laws of ritual purity, ritual impurity, that if the entire community is ritually impure, basically the laws don't necessarily apply. So normally, to go into the temple and to light the menorah, you have to have pure oil. But the presumption is that after the war they fought, everyone had some contact with a corpse. Everyone either touched the corpse or was in contact with someone else who touched the corpse. But the presumption was that the entire community had some contact with the dead body, so everybody in the community was ritually impure, which meant that they didn't need to use purified oil. They could have used any oil. They could have used any oil. No problems. But they didn't want to do the mitzvah on that level. They wanted to do it on the higher level. They wanted, no, I don't care if I could have gotten away with using impure oil. We're only going to use pure oil. So they were striving to do more. They wanted to go beyond. That's Hanukkah, going beyond. And so they only wanted to use pure oil. And then our mystical teachers speak about the meaning of the number eight. The number eight is the number for Hanukkah. There are eight days of Hanukkah, and eight is the number of transcendence. The Maharal from Prague points out that seven is the number of the natural order. There are seven days of the week, and there are seven lost colors of the rainbow, and seven notes in the music, at least in the Western musical scale. Go to India, it's different. But seven is somehow that number of our physical plane of existence. And eight is the number that is metaphysical. It so Hanukkah, again, is this number eight, transcendence. And then the physical symbol of Hanukkah is the flame. I don't know of anything else in the world that defies gravity. Everything else, basically, it will fall to the ground. The flame is the only thing that by its nature it licks up. It's just moving up by itself. It's striving to go higher and higher. So we have these examples where I believe Hanukkah is screaming at us, you can't just stay on this level. You've got to go beyond. 
What are we trying to go beyond? We're trying to go beyond this level. The whole point of Hanukkah is, look, boys and girls, we're living in a world now where we haven't reached a redeemed world. We're not living in that time where God's knowledge is spread like the waters that cover the seas. We're living in a time where we're post these miracles. We're not living in a time anymore where God smashes us over the head with supernatural miracles. And what Hanukkah is screaming out to us, it's saying to us, you've got to go beyond. You've got to get beyond this level where God has to literally rip open the curtains and reveal himself. You've got to begin being able to connect with God even when he's hidden. But I mentioned that Hanukkah is the holiday of education, of chinuch. So how does Hanukkah teach us this lesson? I'm trying to bring it to a close now. I'll give you two illustrations. Two illustrations of how Hanukkah teaches this lesson of transcendence. One, this is pointed out by the Maharal of Prague also. There were two kinds of miracles on Hanukkah. Hanukkah had a military victory, but you know what? If you wanted to, you could have explained it away. Well, we were fighting for our lives, and we had a home court advantage, we were fighting, you know, they, what do they know about Israel, and we know all the good hiding. But if you really wanted to push God out of the picture, in the same way people were able to push God out of the picture in 1973, in 1967, and in Tebi, so if you want to somehow explain it away naturally, you can come up with an answer. But there was those, th that natural miracle, that hidden miracle on Hanukkah, that military victory that was a hidden miracle. However, you had the supernatural miracle of the, can of the menorah burning for eight days. You can't explain that away naturally. Oil that should have lasted one day burns for eight days. Listen to what the Maharal from Prague says. He says, the purpose of that miracle of the oil is to illuminate the military victory. The purpose of the oil miracle is to illuminate the military victory and tell you, don't think for one minute that we were able to vanquish our oppressors by our skill and our might and our power. So Hanukkah, its very essence, its nature, its what Hanukkah is, it's there to teach us this lesson, that Hanukkah has both kinds of miracles. And Hanukkah is saying you've got to get beyond that level of needing God to openly reveal himself to see him. I'll show you one, one more example with you. In all of rabbinic literature, probably the most famous question, I have a book that has, I think, 700 answers to this question. Probably the most famous question was asked by Rav Yosef Karo about Hanukkah itself. A very obvious question, actually. question is this. Hanukkah lasts for eight days. It's an eight-day holiday. And he asked a very simple question. He says, well, why does it last eight days? Really, they had the answer would be because the, the oil burned for eight days. But he says, yeah, but they had a one-day supply of oil, meaning that it would have burned for one day anyway. So he says, well, well, so how much was miraculous? Meaning, it seems that the miracle were those last seven days. The, right? The, the, the Mazel Tov, the world burned for eight days. But they had a one-day supply of oil. So Rav Yosef Karo asks, so maybe Hanukkah should be a seven-day holiday. Why don't we have an eight-day holiday? I think it's a very good question. 
Anyway, there are literally hundreds of answers to this question. So I want to share with you one answer, though. I've seen it in a number of places. The first time I saw it was by Ruben Feinstein, and I since saw it by other people as well. That the entire question is inappropriate. It's an inappropriate question. The question is saying, why do we have eight days of holiday? Because only the last seven days are miraculous. You know, one of the things that we do is we use the word miracle when we see something that gets our attention, right? So if you're standing there by the Red Sea, by the Yamsuf, and it splits and the Jews can go in and everyone gets around and they so you go, oh, look, a great miracle happened. I mean, that there are certain times when God waves that flag, that nace, and it's obvious that a miracle's taken place. And so we react and we say, look, a miracle happened. The sea split. Or when the whole Nile River turns to blood. <clears throat> look, a miracle happened. But the question is, well, who put the river there in the first place? I mean, that we unfortunately only talk about God doing something when again God destroys the laws of nature. In many ways a miracle, I'm sorry, in many ways nature is just a miracle that keeps on happening over and over and over again. So unfortunately we get all excited when the sea splits. We go, miracle! But who put the sea there in the first place? So what David Feinstein says is what a mistake it is to say only the last seven days were miraculous because the oil wasn't there and it burnt anyway. He says, no, who makes oil burn in the first place? Right. So the whole purpose of Hanukkah is to teach us this lesson of transcendence. Don't make the mistake of thinking that it's only miraculous, that it's only God when something supernatural happens that destroys the laws of nature. No, Hanukkah is telling us that the fact that oil can burn in the first place is a miracle. All of nature is a miracle because a miracle basically means God is doing something. But God is doing everything. And it shouldn't be that we only notice that when something unusual or strange or bizarre or supernatural takes place. So the Talmud has a beautiful story, the last piece here, from Tractate Tanit. One Sabbath Eve at twilight, Rebchanina ben Dosi, this is a man that had miracles every, every day of his life, miracles. Anyway, his daughter, he was, he, she was sad, she was very upset. He, he comes home Friday before Shabbat, she's crying. He says to her, why are you so upset? She says, because I used vinegar for the oil. I, I put vinegar into the Shabbos candles instead of putting oil in. And I, 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 I used vinegar instead of oil, and the vinegar is not going to last. So he said to her, what's the big deal? He said, whoever commanded the oil to burn can also command the vinegar to burn. What's the difference? Oil, vinegar, it's just basically God runs the show. And don't worry so much about the nature and not nature. There's no difference between miracle and nature. It's all miracle. Everything is a miracle. And that's what happened. That Shabbat, the vinegar burned the entire day until after the end of Shabbat. I'm going to leave you with one final thought, and then uh, I guess sure. God willing, we'll take questions. I'm not going back to Toronto until tomorrow, <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm here. There's a very strange passage in the Talmud. The rabbis ask 
why did we lose Jerusalem? There are many answers that are given. And one of the answers that the rabbis suggest is, they say, I mean, it's, it's a bizarre piece, because we observed the Torah, we, we lived according to the Torah. And the rabbis say, that sounds like a good thing. Why, why would that cause us to lose Jerusalem? Because we were living according to the letter of the law, but we didn't go beyond the letter of the law. I mean that when you think about it, what kind of a relationship would it be if a couple gets married and on the first day of their wedding, the husband says to the wife, look dear, I love you very much. You're very sweet, very cute. And you know what? I'm willing to abide by all of the terms of our marriage contract, but don't even think about asking me to do anything that's not here on the paper, right? That's not, that's not gonna be a good marriage, right? Or you go to your first day of work and you say to the boss, look, I'm willing to get here at nine o'clock in the morning and I'm willing to do everything on my job description, but don't even think about asking me to stay one minute after five or to do anything that's not on the job description. So the rabbis are saying that when we basically live our lives where we're saying to God, look God, I'll do whatever I have to do. I'm willing to just play by the rules. But, you know, I'm not interested in, you know, making more trouble for myself. I'm, I'm willing to just to, to, to get by with the minimum. So the rabbis say that kind of attitude where basically people are just interested in fulfilling their obligations, that's where, why we lose Jerusalem. And that really a healthy spiritual personality wants to basically see rules and the laws as a starting point, as, as, a, as, a, as a safety net may, maybe, as, as the minimal that we do. But really, if you're in love with someone, you want to do everything they want. So that's really what Hanukkah, I believe, is trying to teach us. That's why I believe at this point in our history, we're, we're Hanukkah people. We're people that should be trying to up our game and that we should be trying to grow and to never be satisfied. And if we have a certain amount of connection to God, a certain amount of faith in God, we should try to increase that and deepen it. The Talmud says that at the end of 120 years, when we go upstairs, there's gonna be four questions that were asked. And the first question we're gonna be asked, the Talmud says is, nasata v'natata ve'emunah which usually is translated, did you deal honestly and fairly in your business dealings? First question. But the Tzanza Rebbe, one of the great Hasidic masters, read this a little bit differently. And he read it like this. Nasata v'natata be'emuna. Did you do business with your faith? Meaning, any person that has $1,000 is not just going to put it under their mattress. People that have money want the money to grow. And if you have $1,000, you want to hopefully have $1,200 next year, or whatever you can grow it to. So what do people do with their money? They read investment advice, and they speak to people how to invest, what I do with their money. But people put effort and energy into growing their money. And the Talmud's asking us, at the end of our life, we're going to be asked this, what did you do to grow your faith? What did you do to, to deepen your faith? And it's one thing for people to say, I believe there's a God that runs the world. That's a bottom line level. But then there's a level of bitachon, of trust. And it's one thing to acknowledge that there's a God that created the world. That's basically answering a question on a test. Do you believe there's a God? Yes, I believe there's a God. But then to live your life as if there is a God and to live your life with the trust in that God, that takes a lot of work.
And I believe that what Hanukkah is trying to teach us is to go beyond, never to be satisfied. Whatever we're doing, if it's our study of Torah, to try and study on a deeper level, to try and, and, and focus our minds and ask deeper questions, but never to be satisfied with doing things on the level that we're at, like Joseph, always seeking more, always seeking to go beyond, to transcend, to grow. And I think that as a world, that's how we're going to be able to reach this ultimate level where God's reality will be as natural to all of us, every person on the planet, as the waters that cover the sea. I want to thank you all so much for inviting me to spend all this time. I shouldn't have spoken so long, but uh, thank you so much. And now the floor is yours. Let's thank you.